Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Those are the first six ver- seven verses sorry, of Psalm 72, which is the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, December the 22nd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We're looking at um, 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 17, which is when David takes it in his mind and his heart to uh, build a house for the Lord. Um, Also in Titus 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 8, and then in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. So, what we have with David is when the king lived in his house, so he is comfortable, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David's at ease. He has established himself, and, and his kingdom is at peace. And so he decides, well, wait a minute, that there's something to do. And that something to do is build a house for the Lord. And it seems perfectly logical for David's mind to go in that direction and to make a plan to do that very thing. And to Nathan, it sounds perfectly reasonable as well. And so he says, go for it. Do exactly what is in your heart because the Lord's with you in this. But... (laughs) That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Which is exactly what David said he was going to do. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And it's been a very long time. I mean, it could be as long as a thousand years here in this. At least 500 years have passed during this period of time. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of my judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, remember he was a shepherd, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And, and that's essentially what he promised to Abraham. Remember what he promised Abraham was that he would make him a name. And so he was giving him a great name. And so now he's promising the same thing in this covenant here that he's making with David. That There's a uh, close resemblance. If you look at the, the language here, what you'll see is a very close resemblance to the covenant that God makes with the people at Sinai. Here he says, I've done these things for you. I've taken you from the pasture. And that's what he's, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, is the way he starts the covenant at Sinai in Exodus 20. And so here what he's saying is, is, is that, that I've taken you from the pasture and I've made you a prince over my people. The judges had been there before and they were to shepherd Israel, but you're a prince over my people. And I'm going to give you a great name, like the name of the great ones in the earth. 
And so I'm going to make your name as great as all those other rulers that people know about. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So he's going to make him a name, and he's going to make him a house. And what a house means is he's going to establish David's line. And so this is going to be a royal house, which is the line that comes from David, is to be the house of Israel. So in Britain, for instance, you have the house of York, you have the Lancastrian house. And so you get the house of means this is the royal line of succession will come through David's house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So this is going to be Solomon, as we know. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So what he's saying is, is look, I repented of making Saul king because of his sin. I will not do that to your descendants who come after you, David. You'll never lack for one to sit on the throne. Now, as we know, they certainly are exiled from the land for long periods of time, and then ultimately they come back, and there has been no king for a very, very long period of time. There hasn't been a king since about, what, 600, somewhere in there, 500-600 B.C. There have been no kings in Israel except, well, the one who came about 2,000 years ago the one whose birth and incarnation we'll celebrate in just a few days. And so that one not only sits on David's throne forever, he also sits on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. So he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do with you what I did with, with Saul. Your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan went back to him and said, David, you know, yesterday I said that um, you should go ahead and build a house for the Lord because he's with you. Well, during the night, I got a word from the Lord. And that word is, no, you're not to do that. It's, it's a nice thought, and it makes perfect sense that you would do that. But no, God's got somebody else to do that job, and it's your son so in, the, in those days, in the gospel reading, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So what are those days? Well, those days are when the angel comes and makes the annunciation to Mary that she's going to have a child. And so what does she do? She leaves there where she was because the angel also said, and behold, your cousin Elizabeth is now several months pregnant with one who will be the forerunner. And so she goes. Mary leaves where she is, and she goes up to the hill country and goes to the house of Zechariah, and she greets Elizabeth there. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, this would be a much older woman, 
Elizabeth would have been. We we don't know how old Mary is. We we're pretty sure she's probably a teenager, and so we've got to believe also then because we what we know about retirement ages for the priests in those days that Elizabeth's going to be around fifty. So there's a pretty good disparity in ages here, and so but when she heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, that's an odd greeting for Elizabeth to give to Mary because Mary's a virgin. (laughs) Mary isn't married. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? And so again, you've got this virgin that she's greeting with this odd greeting about the fruit of her womb. And then she's also saying she's, she's bowing down essentially before this much younger woman because she recognizes God has favored her and that she is bearing the child of God. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So remember the prophecy that comes to Zechariah, the prophetic word that's given to him by, well, an archangel, that said that, that the baby would be filled with the Holy Spirit in the mother's womb. And so here what she said is, my child leapt for joy already in the womb. And so Mary and Elizabeth have this, this thing between the two of them, but it's a uh, really unusual thing to hear the words of Elizabeth to Mary here. So Mary's response to that is what we know as the Magnificat or the Song of Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And as Protestants, sometimes we can get a little bit uh, twisted on that issue because Roman Catholics make such a big deal out of Mary that the Protestant response to that is frequently far too much in the other direction. And, and so we're afraid of making much of Mary. But you know who made much of Mary? God. And you know who else made much of Mary? Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And then also John, to whom Jesus gives her. I mean, Mary is an important figure, and we need to be more like Mary. We need to be those who are willing to say to him, you know, I don't understand what it is that you want me to do. It makes no sense to me, but I'm perfectly willing to do it because I'm your servant. And so, yes, is the answer of God's servants to God's request. We, it, it's faith that he means only good for us, no matter if we understand it or whether it even looks good in the short or long term. So he says, she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so that's that humility in the way that we approach the throne is the recognition that he is God. He is the one who created all things and who sustains all things. He's the one who is making all things hang together in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who will ultimately judge all things, and then we'll see the recapitulation of all things with the new creation. She says he has shown strength with his arm. And now it's going to sound like the the song or the the prayer of Hannah that we saw yesterday. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So we know this is about six months after Elizabeth has gotten pregnant. And so now what we know is, is that Mary stays with her right up until she has the, she, Elizabeth, has the child, John the Baptist, that she's carrying. So she stays there with them, with her kinswoman, Elizabeth, and her husband, the priest, Zechariah. And so they stay there. She stays there during the first part of her pregnancy. But what Mary is seeing is, is what she believes is, a, is going to be a reversal that, that the rich are getting ready to be brought down and the poor are getting ready to be lifted up. And it's true, but not in an earthly sense. I mean, there's a lot still that Mary probably doesn't understand at all. She's, she's thinking, what a wonderful thing it will be to, to bring into the world the Messiah, the King that everyone has been waiting for and hoping for, and he's chosen me to do this, which is an incredible honor, but there's so much that Mary can't possibly know, can't possibly imagine what all that will mean, and certainly can't possibly imagine that the glorification and the, the coronation of her son as king will be accomplished through a Roman cross and death. In the uh, letter to Titus, who Paul left behind, remember, in Crete to establish the church and its leadership there. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's not just a knowing thing. It's a doing and a being thing. Christianity is way more than, than just knowledge. It's knowledge that changes your life. It's knowledge that sets the pole towards which your life is now pointed. And if you think about who you will be, then what it is is a call to become like that now as much as possible, following the commandments of God and being obedient to the life he calls his people to live as witnesses to him. So he says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what Paul's argument is here is not to say Jesus came to impart a bunch of knowledge and understanding. No, what he said is he came to impart the truth around which our lives are now to be oriented. He, he came to redeem us from lawlessness, purify himself for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We should be a unique people. Our desires should be actually different. Our lives should be different. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, you step into this leadership thing. You are the leader, and you're the head of the church. You exhort, so lift up, build up, and encourage, and rebuke with all authority. So when you see sin, point it out. Go in hard and do it with authority, and don't let anyone say no to you for that. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's the characteristic of the world, he said. That, that's exactly how the world looks. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us from all of that. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So your salvation was accomplished by Jesus. Not because of anything you had done, but because of his mercy and his love for sinners. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So regeneration and renewal means you're to be changed which is exactly what he tells the Romans. But the way you're to be changed, while I've said multiple times this is not a head thing and a knowledge thing, it begins there. It always has to begin there. But then it moves from knowing to loving and doing and being. That's what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think a different way. Value things differently. See things rightly. In other words, see things as God sees those things. Seize those things that are eternal and enjoy those things that are temporal. But make sure that, that you're, you're only enjoying them. And the way to do that is to constantly be thankful for those things, not that you gain those things for yourselves or you possess those things in any shape, form, or fashion because those things are passing away. But, but be thankful for all that you have because it was given to you by him in one way or another. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the kingdom according to the hope of eternal life. That's the, that's the thing we should want more than anything else is that inheritance which is in heaven. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So David proposes a good work for himself, and that is to build the house of the Lord. God says, no, I don't want you to do that. I'm way more interested in the establishment of your kingdom. I'm, estab- I'm interested in the establishment of that kingdom, not s- simply because of you, David, but because of the one who will ultimately sit on the throne. So that's the important thing, is, is that David wanted to do this and desired to do this, even though God said no. He wanted the right things, and because he wanted the right things, he got the thing that he never said that he wanted in exactly the same way that his son Solomon does when he asks for wisdom instead of wealth and power. And so it's important that we keep our eyes fixed always on the kingdom of God as the most important thing we can have, and that everything else is just gravy.